Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 22nd of February, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and David Scott bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Many apologies for that small uh, technical problem. It uh, happens sometimes. It, it does. And actually, we've got a couple of technical problems today. We solved that one, but uh, YouTube had did notice just before we came on, didn't update the uh, the date and the graphic for uh, for the live stream. So it does still say the 19th of February, which is a real pain. Sometimes YouTube does this. Um, uh, so we do apologize for that. But look, let's get straight on then. Uh, because uh, come in, we're open. Apparently Boris is going to be speaking at uh, 3.30 this afternoon in Parliament to give a statement on the uh, lifting of the lockdown. Um, and it's going to be in a couple of stages, a number of stages. Uh, March the 8th, schools are going to open. There's going to be outdoor after-school sports and activities allowed. This is fantastic. Uh, recreation in a public space, such as a park, uh, that's going to be allowed, but only for two people. Uh, and then uh, you're going to be allowed, though, to sit down for coffee uh, or for a picnic, but only two people. Um, and then, uh, although schools are going to be opening for all pupils on the 8th of March, apparently, uh, it's going to be the case that there's going to be a little bit of flexibility built into that uh, a lot to allow the schools to organise for testing of pupils. Uh, and then from the 29th of March, uh, allegedly, the rule of six comes back. Excellent. We're going to get the rule of six back. No tears mentioned yet, though. Uh, no tears. Uh, but the rule of six will be back and uh, outdoor sports facilities such as basketball courts and so on will be allowed to be used. Um, and, uh, well... What's the reaction been? Uh, Steve Baker uh, has been uh, put, published an article in the Telegraph headlined, we must believe in vaccines, restore our way of life and acknowledge the harms used by lockdowns. Uh, so he's uh, saying that, uh, well, let's have a look at uh, some of the points that he's making. He's absolutely uh, bought into the vaccine uh, narrative. He wants everybody to be getting their vaccines, but he's saying uh, this week, uh, some in government have started talking about a different test for lifting these devastating lockdowns and restrictions, one of circulation or infection numbers. So he's already hearing in the background that there's going to be perhaps some pullback from, from this. Uh, and we'll come on to that a little bit more in a second. Uh, he goes on to say this, we simply must have regard uh, to harms caused by lockdowns and restrictions as well as the disease. Now, he said that in the context uh, that you know, vaccines are the way out of this. And uh, so that has to be kept in mind. Uh, he said, we cannot be said to be free of lockdowns and restrictions, restrictions when at a moment's notice, the government might shut down. Uh, and he went on then to list the types of things that the government might shut down. Um, and David, uh, I have to say, we're, we're going to come on to this in a little bit more detail in a second. But uh, one of the things that it struck me about what Steve Baker was saying was that really, we're, we're not going to be free of lockdowns until uh, government starts behaving democratically again. And this is really one of the features that there's almost an acceptance that government has been operating outside its authority without the will of parliament and so on. And that's OK. Operating outside its authority, out, operating outside of anything its authority could ever be, because it's not just a matter of the will of parliament. It's operating in a way which is unlawful. It's imposing restrictions on people which are unlawful. And, and the, the explanations given, oh, well, look at COVID. And when you look at the statistics, it's much the same as every other year. And you wonder where it is. And it's this mysterious thing that justifies 
endless infringements on our individual rights. And nobody, even the better people in Parliament who are speaking out against this, very few of them, if anybody, are saying, well, why is the government instructing us in this minute detail? Why does it not just leave us alone? Why does it not just let us make our own decisions about risks which are quite normal? And it, it seems to me that having surrendered uh, all authority over every aspect of our life to the state is going to be very difficult to get it back again. Uh, that is absolutely true. Now, uh, let's go on with what Steve Baker was saying. He went on to say that's why we need the protection of a new public health act. So this is the bit that really staggered me. He's calling for a new public health act. Uh, let's just have a look and see what he's uh, actually calling for here. Um, so first of all, uh, to ensure that Parliament could vote in advance and often on lockdowns and restrictions to ensure their proportionality is justified by ministers. So, uh, David, he's actually calling for a new piece of legislation in order to guarantee that Parliament behaves in the way that it's behaved for hundreds of years. This is really quite an incredible, uh, to my mind, an incredible position that he's taking here, that, that, that for normal democracy to work, we need a new act of Parliament. And also, he's institutionalising in, in statute lockdowns and restrictions, yeah. something that would have been unthinkable until a year ago. Yes, OK, well, let's go on with it then. He says, provide that legislation could be amended and debated in the usual way. So again, we need an act of parliament to provide that legislation can be amended and debated in the usual way. It's quite incredible. Uh, he goes on to say that require ministers to go through the process of cost benefits analysis, quantifying the harms and benefits of their proposals. This is stuff which is supposed to happen anyway. And he's trying to, to justify creating a new health protection act in order to make these things happen. And finally, uh, it would recognize that experts are only human too ending monopoly expert advice by introducing multidisciplinary teams and red team challenge. Well, perhaps that's the only one that I slightly agree with. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I, I don't know what you think, Brian, but this is, well, I just think this is an incredible position for, for a senior Tory MP to be taking. I, th I do not think that these uh, proposals have come out of his own mind. I do not believe that Steve Baker was sitting in an armchair thinking about what was going on and thought this is what we need to do. I think these are seeded ideas that have been put in his head through the various committees, the research teams that are operating up in Westminster. These are seeded into his mind and he's now trying to uh, push these through. David, you, men you mentioned operating outside authority and my mind went straight to the political charity Common Purpose talking about beyond authority. 20 years ago, we were warning that uh, policies were being seeded into government by unaccountable bodies such as the charity Common Purpose. What I think we're looking at is those unaccountable policies now coming to the surface. But I don't think he's thinking it through, Mike. Mm. Well, he's, he's suggesting that our God-given inalienable rights can be removed as long as some bureaucrat does a cost-benefit analysis. I don't find that tremendously reassuring. No. Well, look, uh, as I say, Boris is going to be making a statement in Parliament at 3.30 this afternoon, apparently, roughly around that time, um, and uh, the lockdown may be lifted. But 
There are caveats on this lifting of the lockdown. Let's just have a look at what uh, has been published so far by the government. Uh, they're saying that the lockdown would be lifted only if the vaccine deployment program continues successfully, uh, only if uh, evidence shows vaccines are sufficiently effective in reducing hospitalization and deaths in those vaccinated. So it will come as no surprise to everybody that today the, uh, the latest uh, top headline on the BBC is that vaccines have been fantastically effective. They have reduced hospitalizations. They've reduced deaths. This is what the BBC is pushing out uh, this morning, uh, just in time for this, uh, for this press release from the government. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, only if infection risks uh, rates do not risk a surge in hospitalizations, we would put unsustainable pressure on the NHS. We didn't have that at any point. Let's just remind ourselves, we didn't have that at any point, not since March. Uh, and finally, uh, our assessment of the risks is not fundamentally changed by new variants of concern. Now, you'll note the capital V and the capital C on that. That isn't my typo. That is there, uh, the way that they published it in their press release. So I'm putting a trademark uh, sign on that because I find that very, very interesting. David, variants of concern has become a brand uh, with capital letters. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, it, it's, it's a means of extending the fear, isn't it? Right? We get to a point where everyone's either had it or been exposed to it, and how, how much of a threat can this be? Um, well, it has, to, it has to change into something else, something new and strangely more threatening, even though it's very much like what we had before. And it simply extends the, the state power over every aspect of our lives indefinitely. Where does this actually end? Uh, I haven't heard anybody, Boris or anyone else, saying how we actually exit this completely and utterly. David, it's going to end in the magic kingdom, and uh, I'll help viewers with that uh, description <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, David, uh, this is a mail then, and uh, they've got a headline here. Dominic Cummings wants... Uh, wanted Boris Johnson to scrap the SAGE committee after raging at uh, leaks by pro-lockdown scientists amid, amid fears. Some of them were using their position to push for tougher restrictions. This is sort of uh, harking back to what uh, uh, Steve uh, Baker has just been talking about in some ways. Well, this, I mean, we, I knew there was some reason we, we had a slightly soft spot for Dominic Cummings. He was complaining that the scientists were essentially taking over they were they were dictating policy they had their own agenda it wasn't in the interest of the country and it wasn't in the it was ignorant of the effects it had on the wider economy and, and on the wider nation and he thought uh, that the person who was called prime minister should actually be running the country and not the sage committee and uh, now he's no longer in post uh, indeed Indeed. Uh, well, look, let's move on then uh, to the latest flu news, uh, because, of course, we've been talking about this for quite some time now. Uh, here, this is not the latest uh, COVID-19 surveillance report. Uh, there'll be a new one out uh, tomorrow, I believe, or Wednesday. Uh, and But we were making the point, if you remember, uh, that if you look at the graphs, flu has more or less disappeared. Uh, very, very low levels of flu in the UK. Uh, and in fact, globally, uh, flu has disappeared completely, according to the World Health Organization. It disappeared finally in week 16 or week 17 of 2020, and it hasn't been seen since. Uh, but our old friend, Professor John Edmonds, has been speaking out about this. Uh, here he is. He has been saying, if I had to gamble on it, he's from SAGE, of course. He said, if I have 
if I had to gamble on it, then I would guess we are likely to get a more se severe flu epidemic in the coming winter, that's uh, 2021, uh, assuming restrictions are fully lifted by then. Uh, he went on to say, we have effectively missed out on flu this winter, so the levels of immunity are less than would be typical. And he was also suggesting that uh, social distancing had something to contribute to that as well. Uh, and uh, he said, in fact, it's not impossible that we will have an out-of-season epi epidemic, perhaps in the autumn rather than the winter. So SAGE is keeping all uh, options open, David, to make sure that uh, lockdown can be called in at any opportunity at any point during the year. Now, personally, I think lockdown is being lifted temporarily purely to uh, get past the G7 and make sure that uh, international travel and so on is possible for the G7. Uh, and also the uh, COP uh, conference, the climate conference was taking place in, in Glasgow. As soon as those two major international events are over, I think we're going to be straight back into this. So just let me, let me get that one straight. His position is that social distancing, mask wearing and the lockdown rules kill natural immunity and therefore generate further waves of, of disease the reaction to which is going to be more social distancing, mask wearing and lockdown. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's his idea. That certainly seems to be the position that he's arguing for, yes. But he is, he is a professor. Is he, is he, a, mo <laughs> is he a moron? No, no, he, well, well you, might, you might call him that, but he, but he is the new breed of professor, uh, you know, that, that's now on the SAGE committee. And this is the, this is the man or one of the men that has been involved in setting this policy for the last 12 months. So uh, let's just put him back on screen. Uh, this is one of the key people in the SAGE committee that has created this drive for and this pressure on the government to keep the lockdown in place. David, if you, if you look at the image on screen carefully, you can see some of his drawings and scientific research pinned on the board behind him. <laughs> now look, we shouldn't. Yes, David, thoughts? Oh, no, I think I, I, I can't believe the, the fact that, we're, that we as a nation are listening to these people, right? This is not, this is not rational, right? This is not rational behavior. It, it achieves a certain end, it achieves, it achieves control, it, it achieves a society that's locked down, it achieves authority in the hands of certain professors, it achieves authority in the hands of the state. But what does it actually do for the ordinary men and women of this country? Only harm, as far as I can see. Um, why are we listening? Why is anyone listening to this man? Um, these are good questions. Now, of course, one of the uh, uh, major areas of harm is economic harm. Uh, so let's uh, have a look at, uh, well, how do you pronounce her second name? It's Mariana Mazzucato, is that right? I think we'll we'll go with that, uh, and I apologise to the woman if we've if we've in any way um, mangled her second name. Now, uh, we've actually reported on Mariana before uh, because she's an advisor to the Scottish government, and she has come up on the news a long time ago. But thanks to uh, one of our viewers for for pointing out just what she's been doing in the last few years. Uh, so she's. Um, working for the University College London Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Now, Brian, it's not common purpose, it's just very, very close. Uh, so the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose is changing how public value is imagined 
practiced and evaluated to tackle societal challenges. Does this uh, language ring any bells with you, Brian? Well, it's it's um, it's common purpose language with a probably a 2021 spin on it. But I tell you, this is all leading to the Magic Kingdom. Well, she's been very busy actually visiting the Magic Kingdom or, or Davos, which is more or less the same thing. So here she is at the World Economic Forum. Uh, she's, here she's joined global leaders in the World Economic Forum in Davos, providing expertise around globalisation and competitiveness. Now, um, it's very good news for Scotland, of course, that she's also making policy impact north of the border. Here she is with, with uh, her arm round Nicola Sturgeon, um, teaching Nicola Sturgeon how to think about the economics and uh, giving her a little pamphlet from the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And uh, the note here is, uh, the, IP, the IIPP's work is dedicated to this ambition. We bring revived notions of public value and public purpose to the centre of political economy and to concrete policy practice. Our work equips leaders to co-design growth that is innovation-led, sustainable and inclusive. So Nicola Sturgeon's going to co-design Scotland's growth under this wise tutelage. So we should find out a little bit more about who's setting the policy, because remember, Nicola's a follower. She does what the advisors say. This is her advisor. Um, and she's also advising the EU. And she's advising the Italian government. And she's advising the Norwegian government. She's advising many people. So she's very significant. Um, so she's won lots of prizes. So that, that's good. Uh, she's the winner of international prizes, including the 2020 uh, John Von Neumann Award, the 2019 All European Academics uh, Madame de, uh, de Sta uh, what's that? De Stel Prize for Cultural Values. Um, she was also named um, one of the, the three most important thinkers about innovation by the New Republic, one of the 50 most creative people in business in 2020 by Fast Company, and one of the 25 leaders shaping the future of capitalism by Wired. And here's the thing I've got about that. She's not innovated anything. She's not led a company. She's not formed a company. She's not engaged in capitalism. She's not taken a risk. She's not been an entrepreneur. She's just written about it. She's not done any of these things. She's just theorized about it whilst being well-funded. Well, shall we see where she's well-funded from? Here's just a few of the research grants. It's just that this is just a smattering of what's on her CV, the Open Society Foundation. The BBC, she's actually managed to get money out of the BBC. You've got to give her some credit for that. Um, we've also got uh, the European Commission, the Institute for New Economic Thinking, the Ford Foundation. So the tax-exempt foundations are funding this person. She's doing the research. She's setting up institutions which are state-funded, and they're telling the politicians how to think about creating innovation and creating economic growth. So what do you think is the, the, the exemplar for this? What, where do they look for inspiration? China. So uh, here we talk about uh, Schrumpeter, the, um, the, the slightly Austrian economist. Um, he was born in Austria. He was not Austrian uh, exactly in terms of his, his outlook. He's far more big state than that. But he's very popular. Um, and uh, the, so the, the, the institute which she has founded has, create, has, has issued a paper entitled Schrumpeter, The Entrepreneurial State and China. Um, and uh, a little quote from that, 
uh, that paper. The central claim is that China's speed and ability to leapfrog its peer nations in the last three decades stems largely from the fact that it possesses a fully developed entrepreneurial state. From a theoretical point of view, China's achievements reaffirm all the elements contained in Schrumpeter's vision of the successful state involvement in economic activity. The centrality of selective credit for innovation and development, the key role of the state in steering innovation and exercising leadership towards development, the strategic role of investment development banks to provide the necessary funding. China's development trajectory has them all. A Schrumperian type of banking system, state-directed involvement forging the transformation, a robust degree of socialization of investment. They conclude the Chinese state encapsulates all three dimensions and therefore should be taken as the prototype of a Schrumperian entrepreneurial state. So what we what's been pushed in Scotland, in Norway, in Europe, in Italy and elsewhere is a view that China illustrates how it should be done. So forget freedom, forget all that sense of, of potential, of choice, of there being many opportunities. No, the opportunities will come to those people the state selects in a fascist type system as, as the recipients of that opportunity. If you're not in the club, then um, you need not even bother applying. Um, okay, well, let's uh, move on quickly because of course that's, uh, that's policy that uh, is being pushed into one government in the UK. Uh, are we seeing the effects of that? Perhaps uh, we're seeing the effects of certain types of economic policy being implemented under the covers of COVID. And uh, well, this is one headline from the BBC this morning, COVID lockdown, we're burning through about £500,000 a day. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the gym franchise, Pure Gym, £500,000 a day. And that's the average over eight months of closure. Uh, the, uh, their chief executive said, told the BBC Today programme this morning, uh, it's meant about £120 million of costs uh, and no revenue coming in over 275 gyms. Um, so we'll see what uh, lockdown, uh, the lockdown announcement this afternoon does that. But we don't need to worry because apparently jobs are the job situation is not going to be as bad as we thought. Uh, this is the uh, CIPD uh, who run this uh, Labour Market Outlook survey uh, and they've published their report, UK companies report strongest employment intentions since onset of COVID-19 pandemic survey shows. Uh, and let's just have a look at what uh, this says. The UK economy could be close to unemployment peak, uh, probably similar to peak oil or something, I don't know, but anyway, close to unemployment peak according to a survey of 2,000 employees, employers. Uh, shares of uh, share of employers planning to recruit has risen to 56% uh, in the first quarter. Um, but there are caveats, and the caveats were downplayed in the mainstream press when I saw this, uh, but the caveats are very clear in, the, uh, in their report. Uh, they say, however, it is far too soon to rule out further significant private sector redundancies later in the year if the government does not extend the furlough scheme to the end of June or if the economy suffers any additional unexpected shocks. Uh, it would be hugely counterproductive if the government's financial support faltered while some of the biggest sectors of the UK economy are still in survival mode. Um, so apparently uh, lots of uh, employers, David, uh, suggesting that they might be in a position to recruit in the coming uh, weeks and months, uh, but only if the furlough scheme continues. Um, and uh, I think that's a pretty key point, without the government support, 
uh, it's not going to keep standing? Well, there's so many parts of the economy which are only standing on government government handouts. And if the, the, the furlough scheme is, is ended, then there will be mass unemployment. Um, so we are, it's been masked. It's been masked by a policy which has decided to, to keep the real effects of the lockdown out of the headlines um, and uh, to mitigate them by building up vast amounts of government debt. That's policy and uh, it will continue. Uh, I'm sure it will continue to June um, and there'll be an announcement soon and everyone will be happy until eventually the bill comes due and then we won't be able to pay it. Uh, well, indeed. And as we mentioned on, on Friday, uh, have you got any comments about oh, the, the, the story we mentioned on Friday that, that global uh, debt is now 360% of GDP uh, in total? It's, it's the end. There's no way back from that. It, it cannot be repaid. It cannot be sustained. It's only going to be now more money printing. That's the only way. The only way that they've managed to borrow that in the first place is they're not really borrowing it. It's just been printed by central banks and on it will go. Buy gold is my advice. Uh, okay, so on it will go. Now, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to uh, ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. I'd be very much appreciated. But also, please uh, share our material that you find uh, anywhere. Uh, on the various platforms. And I'd also like to highlight uh, this article just gone up uh, by Ian Davis last night, is COVID-19 a hoax? Now, uh, he's uh, saying, does asking this question make someone a COVID denier? Does considering the possibility that COVID doesn't exist uh, evidence a callous disregard for the lives allegedly lost to the disease? And uh, so this is really a response to much of the criticism of anybody that is asking questions uh, about uh, coronavirus, about COVID-19 and so on. And it goes into quite a bit of detail uh, on germ theory uh, and the various alternative uh, or the various discussions around germ theory at the moment. Uh, it's well worth reading. It's quite detailed, but it is worth reading and worth sharing. So please uh, do share that as well. Excellent. Well, we'll jump from that over to um, Mark Anderson, who uh, was able to join me from the depths of Texas yesterday. Um, we had an interesting discussion. The full discussion will go up on the UK column website, but I wanted just to put up a little clip as uh, Mark talking about some very interesting and positive developments around constitutional sheriffs in the US. So uh, have a listen to this clip, have a think about what he's saying and really what the parallels would be if a similar system was brought in in UK and uh, then we'll show you some of the information he was talking about. You said that uh, there were lots of interesting things to talk about, and one of the key things was a constitutional sheriff's conference. Now, I think you had written an article in American Free Press about that. Is, is that correct? Um, well, I wrote one article that gets into uh, some history of U.S. elections, and a corollary of that was to talk to Sheriff Richard Mack, the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, to ask him specifically about constitutional sheriffs and elections. And I asked him, could sheriffs intervene in some way, shape, or form if elections were suspected of being stolen in real time while the theft is apparently happening, 
or immediately after an election? And he said in the affirmative, while a judge's order might be necessary and maybe sheriffs couldn't act totally autonomously, nevertheless, a, the concept of a constitutional sheriff, which is more or less unique to American jurisprudence, under that concept, sheriffs could intervene and conceivably impound voting machines uh, if there were enough complaints by voters that, hey, it looks like there's something very untoward going on. And Sheriff, we need you to step in and question the election workers, question the election board. The, it looks like there's uh, um, irregularities. It looks like there's glitches. It looks like there's criminal acts going on, a fraud, and that sheriffs could intervene in that. But there's a lot of other things that these sheriffs under a constitutional uh, umbrella could do having to do with COVID, having to do with illegal and fraudulent foreclosures on your home, which is a problem in the UK as well as the US and Canada and, and around the world. But um, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association uh, that MAC founded is having an important conference, as you uh, indicated, Brian, February 26 and 27, just north of Houston at a community called the Woodlands. And I'll be there with my videographer engineer, Ron Avery, who helps me co-produce my Republic Broadcasting radio show called Stop the Presses. And we're gonna really flesh out what is the constitutional sheriff? What is the concept behind that? What does a constitutional sheriff believe and do? How do they operate? What is the philosophical and political basis they have? What powers do they have? And how can they help mitigate against this COVID hysteria, mitigate against election fraud and mitigate against, among other things, uh, fraudulent foreclosures on homes. Very important categories. Ron Avery and I are involved in is we're going to provide a live stream service as reporters under my Stop the Presses umbrella. We are going to live stream the entire event, mainly on Friday, February 26th, from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. U.S. Central Time, because people in the UK, in Europe, in Canada, Australia, the US, they need to see that the constitutional sheriff, that this concept is based on the, the, the fact that in, in the US law enforcement, the, 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 the county sheriff is the only elected law enforcement officer. City police chiefs operate for political bosses known as mayors. State police operate for political bosses known as governors. The sheriff, however, ideally, can and should and is expected to answer to the voters first and foremost. So the constitutional sheriff um, puts the sheriff on a lawful basis in terms of common law, in terms of the constitution. So we, we ended it there, but the full clip, as I say, will go up on the, on the UK column website. Uh, this is a very important idea, I think, that's happening in Texas. They're getting back to looking at, uh, at the sheriff system. And as he said, those county sheriffs are the only ones that are elected. Is this the difference between a police officer here in UK and a police constable and policing by consent? Um, why, of course, are people in uh, Texas now looking at this because they know the scale of corruption in Texas and um, with the recent disaster over the cold weather and the snows, uh, Texas has been on its knees. <coughs> Excuse me. So here's the American Free Press article that uh, he's referring to. You can find that on AmericanFreePress.net. Uh, this is detailed 
of that uh, conference, the County Sheriff, America's Last Hope, which is Friday, February the 26th. And you can find that on the mix and stream nstream.com. And uh, amongst other topics that uh, we discussed, of course, the results of uh, vaccinations and uh, uh, Mark was highlighting the defender here with some of the stories, tragic death in this one, uh, but also other cases, 501 deaths, 10,748 other injuries reported following vaccines. Uh, links between the, the vaccines and blood disorders and that's of course certainly being reported here in UK in the yellow card scheme reports which are now starting to come out and uh, this one he also uh, mentioned open vias reports on the numbers of deaths and hospitalizations so I think we can say no doubt that there are adverse reactions but at the moment the US and the UK government simply refusing to uh, investigate those statistics. Um, right, I'll just pop this one up. Uh, it was just sent through to us. Didn't have time to play that, or we do not have time to play the clip on the news, but uh, just to show you uh, what is on the internet, if you go looking for it, an interviewer uh, questioning the Pfizer CEO. Uh, you've not had your shot, when do you plan to get it? And the answer is a lot of hesitation I've not yet had time, as soon as I can, I will, uh, but I'm not really important and I don't want to jump the queue. So you can easily find this little clip with this interview and you can watch the reaction of the chief executive as he squirms and shrugs his shoulder and smiles because uh, at the time the interview took place, he, he hadn't had a, a jab himself. And uh, I've mentioned the statistics now coming out from the yellow card system in UK. Uh, the reading is very, very sobering. Uh, we'll just leave it, leave, it, leave it there with a few images. Um, David, any responses there? It is good to see things happening in Texas because the state has been uh, devastated. They are now recovering from the cold weather. Uh, but um, uh, as a functioning state of the US, it's clear that many people think it's time to move away from what they regard as a corrupt federal system. Well, this is the word that keeps coming up is corrupt. And if, if a society, if a government, if a state becomes so egregiously corrupt, so obviously corrupt, that it just, it just can't be endured any longer, then people are going to find other ways of managing their affairs. Um, and the fact that they're, they're looking towards the law to do this is very encouraging because that's exactly what they should be doing. Um, they should be restoring them to themselves the law and uh, insisting that uh, the, the, the state officials who are busy oppressing them have to, uh, have to follow that law too. Um, I think we're going to see something similar starting to occur in Britain before very much longer. Yes, and to have a look at uh, the power of the parish councils even and what proper police constables should be doing will be a key part of that. Mm. Let's have a quick look at what the BBC's been up to and a big thank you for the viewer that pointed this one out to me. So this was a couple of days ago, commercial TV channels unite to screen COVID vaccine myth-busting video. Um, well, one of the things that this article said was the film will not be shown on the BBC because the corporation's charter prevents it from taking part in campaigns 
but the issues it raises and some of the participants will feature on BBC TV, TV and radio programmes on Thursday. So I just interpreted that for our viewers and listeners today. What it really means is the BBC's charter prevents us taking part in the campaign and that is why we are promoting the campaign in advance and taking part <laughs> in the campaign. I don't think I could put it clearer than that, because if you look at this article about a campaign they can't promote, it's uh, very long. Uh, we can scroll through it a bit here. Uh, it goes on and on. And of course, this is the BBC not talking about this campaign, because if they did, they would be helping to promote it, which they can't. Well, I took exception at this. I decided I'd speak to the BBC's press team. They said they would... Uh, send me a line, and they did. This is the answer. Hi, Brian, in answer to your question earlier, the BBC's position is set out in the press release about the film. While the BBC's charter prevents it from taking part in the campaign, the BBC is looking at the important issues raised by the campaign on the day it launches. So really, we can say to explain uh, why they are taking part in the campaign contrary to their charter, the BBC told me, they're looking at promoting the campaign. Yeah. And uh, I thought I'd challenge them again, so I went back and I said, the statement appears disingenuous, deliberately misleading to the public, in that having said the BBC charter prevents the BBC taking part in the campaigns, the BBC then publishes the article fully supporting and promoting the campaign and boasts that the BBC will be publishing more on the campaign, its promoters and their aims. I asked for an explanation from the BBC as to the reason for this contradictory statement and asked for you to provide the name and position of the BBC employee with overall responsibility for making the statement and producing the article itself. Well, the reply was a stunning silence. Uh, but I did happen to find from 2019 uh, complaints from the public about what the BBC does. Um, and uh, I'll just highlight in this list of complaints, the key ones overwhelmingly are political bias, other bias, factual inaccuracy and offence to public taste. Uh, but this is the organisation that says it's uh, going to work flat out to help all our children. So I'm going to suggest to our audience, the last thing you need near your children is the BBC. Uh, the BBC runs on a budget of £5 billion now. This is the standard of their organisational diagram for adults. Uh, we're just going to ask very nicely if our viewers and listeners will help investigate the BBC to find out who the key people are. Most of them are on salaries of roughly £400,000 a year. But uh, can we bring these people in front of the public gaze to ask them the questions and get answers? Um, okay, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, censorship. Now, uh, we're going to start off with Theresa May back in January uh, 2018, uh, because uh, she said that regulation of the internet uh, will make the UK the best place to start and grow a digital business, but also the safest place to be online. So this is what uh, Theresa May was promising in January 2018. Uh, later on in 2018, then uh, the then uh, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport was talking about 
how the British government might support the mainstream press because they recognised that the mainstream press was in a bit of difficulty. So uh, they, uh, he said that uh, the government was going to take action to tackle the challenges our media face today, uh, not a decade ago. Uh, and so he launched the Cairncross Review. Uh, Dame Frances Cairncross will bring her experience in journalism and academia to tackle these issues with a view to examine the press uh, and protect the future of high quality journalism. Uh, and uh, this is when we started hearing about this concept of trust. Uh, we only want to go to trustworthy sources for our information and so on. Uh, he went on to say, I tremble at the thought of a media regulated by the state in a time of malevolent forces in politics. So he doesn't want to see media regulation, any more media regulation, uh, but he was quite happy to see internet regulation uh, and the platforms being regulated. Uh, he said, uh, if we get this wrong, I fear for the future of our liberal democracy. That's what Matt Hancock was saying. And indeed, that's exactly, uh, I think that was a fair enough statement because uh, the so-called liberal democracy is now uh, at major risk. But following on from that then, the government published their online harms white paper, which was all about free speech being shut down. Now, it was being uh, couched in various languages, a lot of uh, child protection issues and so on. And in fact, uh, if you look through the press over the last couple of weeks, uh, child protection issues have been coming back to the fore because we need regulation on the internet to protect children, despite the fact that uh, doing harm to children is already illegal. And uh, we don't actually need any new legislation to protect children in this regard. Um, but Oliver, to really get to the heart of what the online harms white paper was about, Oliver Dowden, the new digital secretary, uh, well, he told us it's all about defending the country from misinformation and digital interference. That's a top priority for this government. And we've got to keep in mind exactly the infrastructure that the government has built in order to do that. And we've shown this a number of times, but it's worth just remembering what we're looking at here. This is the network that the government has built. Obviously, GCHQs, uh, MI5 and MI6 existed uh, prior to coronavirus, prior to online harms, noise, but we then got the Joint Biosecurity Centre. And most of these organisations are now spying on the British public uh, and watching very closely the narratives that are being pushed around by members of the British public. But the cabinet office is where the real action has happened because in the meantime, they've built a rapid response unit, uh, which is all about social media and uh, analysis of social media narratives and countering social media narratives. With uh, the National Security Communications Team, 77 Brigade has had a new remit, 13 Signals has had a new remit, the D uh, Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport has ha got its own fake news unit, uh, and we've also had the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. Uh, but also, let's not forget, uh, HUT 18, uh, which is another uh, British Army section, uh, which is all about running the information war and uh, countering so-called disinformation in the UK. Uh, we see continuing uh, press headlines. Um, so this is the latest on this. Cases of perverts accessing child pornography nearly double in five years. Therefore, we've got to regulate the internet. Uh, there are other ways to deal with this issue uh, without bringing in new legislation because there's plenty of legislation in place to deal with that already. Uh, we've got this article from 
uh, from uh, the Red Box on Times from uh, Adam Hadley. Online safety bill risks scapegoating platforms and won't create a safety, safer internet. But of course, the basis of this article, once again, is this notion of disinformation uh, and uh, bad behavior on the internet, horrendous racist abuse of black footballers and continuing disinformation from anti-vaxxers is what he wants to deal with. So that that's from 2018 up to date. And so far, the, the uh, results of the uh, online harms uh, inv uh, inquiry and uh, uh, so on has, haven't resulted in any actual legislation, but it has resulted in, first of all, Ofcom being appointed as the new online harms regulator. So Ofcom is gonna be uh, taking that role. Uh, that was announced in December. Uh, Dame Melanie Dawes, uh, the chief executive, was saying we're really pleased to take on this new role. Uh, being uh, online brings huge benefits, but four and five people have concerns about it. That shows the need for sensible, balanced rules that protect users from serious harm, but also recognize the great things about online, including free expression. So we're going to recognize the things about online, including the great things about being online, including free expression by shutting down free expression. That seems to be fit very well with what Brian was just talking about with the BBC and their statements. But uh, another piece of news is that, uh, well, the government seems to be wanting to put Paul Dacre, the former editor of the Daily Mail, in charge of Ofcom. He will become their chairman. Uh, and so I think the timing of that is very interesting. I'll get David's thoughts on that one second. But just to finish this off, uh, the online, online harms white paper, uh, there was a consultation. There were responses to that consultation. Uh, there will be legislation coming out in the next little while. As we got a hint from that Times article a couple of seconds ago, it will be called the online safety bill. So it's all about being safe online because we've got to be safe in everything we do. Lockdowns are about keeping us safe with, from COVID. And this new legislation will be all about keeping us safe online. Um, but free speech, complete shutdown. Well, in fact, it may not be that. Uh, it looks very much like they are going to pursue a narrative where free speech is protected by the online safety bill, but freedom of reach, uh, that will not be protected. Uh, so you'll be allowed to speak out, uh, but you won't. nobody will be allowed to read what you say or hear what you say or see what you say uh, because it's freedom of reach that you have no such right, David. And uh, it's very, very likely that that's gonna be the main focus of uh, the forthcoming legislation. I'm reading, a, <clears throat> I'm reading a book just now by a Polish author. It's entitled The Demon in Democracy. Um, and it's looking at the similarities from someone who lived through communism, the fall of communism, and the transfer of his society over to uh, a liberal democrat uh, system. And he's looking at the similarities between communism and liberal democracy. And one of the things that he sees is this, this need to control the narrative. Uh, there is no real pluralism of ideas, of thought. There is one narrative, and this is put out by every aspect of the state, and any counter view is, is suppressed ruthlessly. He saw the similarity. I'm seeing the similarity. If they're speaking the truth, why are they so afraid of people saying something else? This is yeah. that's the key question. It absolutely is. Uh, but of course, uh, government legislation is only one way uh, to have a chilling effect on freedom of speech on the Internet. Uh, the cancel culture is another. David and uh, Lawrence Fox uh, making some comments uh, that which covered by the, the mail here. 
Yes, the, the Reclaim Party, he's founded a, a political party called the Reclaim Party. They put out a poll uh, to see how many people fi find that uh, they are they're reluctant to speak their minds. 49% um, said it's harder to share thoughts on controversial topics than it was five years ago. Just 12% of those surveyed, one in eight disagreed. On immigration, four in 10 said they were too scared to share their real beliefs. 42% said they didn't want to openly discuss transgender rights. So there we have around half the people in Britain are too frightened to say what they really think because they are frightened of the censure from either the state or from the other half of the people um, or from um, uh, or they're so afflicted by, by a fear that's been created. It may not be real, but it's certainly, uh, it's certainly perceived as being real by the people who are being silenced. Uh, I think that's a, a very wide problem and uh, it's something that many people have written to us about. Actually, they don't want to be on social media. They don't want to be uh, uh, speaking out on social media. It, uh, because they're frightened. Yes. Um, okay. Now, David, uh, this morning on BBC Radio 4 and the Today programme, they did actually discuss something which you've been discussing on this programme for the last couple of weeks, which is the, uh, the inter-Nissan strife uh, in the Scottish National Party. Uh, what's the latest? Yes, it's, it's made the BBC. It's even made the New York Times uh, this week. Uh, a, a quick summary of where we're at. Uh, the Spectator here, uh, Salmon Sturgeon and why the Spectator went to court. Um, the, the Spectator went to court to clarify what the court order, which was put in place to protect the identities of the women who brought complaints against Alex Salmon, actually meant and whether it should be interpreted as as it has been by the uh, by the lawyers inside the Scottish Parliament, as uh, silencing the press in their duty to investigate wrongdoing and to bring matters of public attention, uh, of, of importance to the public attention, and indeed to silence the Parliament in their official investigation into these very events. So the uh, Scottish courts confirmed that this was not their intention, and uh, therefore the publication of the information put out by Alex Salmond and the appearance of Alex Salmond at the committee uh, in Parliament to investigate uh, the, the, the handling of the complaints is, is all back on again. This has been very bad news for some people, such as Leslie Evans. So uh, here the Times Scotland is reporting the new Salmon Inquiry evidence piles pressure on under fire mandarins and a very pensive looking Leslie Evans is sitting there. Um, uh, Times reports uh, two of the most prominent figures in the Scottish Government and the line of fire after Alex Salmon produced fresh evidence before his appearance at the Holyrood Inquiry on Wednesday this week. Uh, Salmon has provided two new statements referring to the Ministerial Code and policy developments last week. Um, these submissions are understood to relate to documents not handed to the Inquiry Committee by either the Government or the Crown Office despite repeated requests. They are likely to heat pressure on Leslie Evans Permanent Secretary of the Civil Service and James Wilf, the Lord Advocate, the Public Prosecutor in Scotland. So more, more pressure on Leslie Evans and, of course, the questions that Robert Green asked uh, of Leslie Evans are still unanswered and we'll be pushing to see if we can get some comment from Leslie Evans or indeed her successor uh, regarding that particular cover-up of the uh, funding of Damalise Angelini's um, lawsuit against Robert. Um, now, uh, Alex Salmon inquired here, the Scotsman reporting, 
Nicola Sturgeon's facing new questions of when she knew of the complaints against the First Minister. One aspect of this is uh, statements by Nicola Sturgeon, which seems to, have, seems to have misled Parliament. Obviously, there's much more to it than that, but that's an area where there's a lot of focus um, and a lot of pressure now mounting on Nicola, uh, threatening her job, threatening her hold on her, her position as First Minister. Um, the Herald here reports that the Conservatives are demanding that the buck stops with uh, with Nicola, not the various fall guys she's got lined up. Um, so that is because, um, as the Times here reports, um, that Leslie Evans and others are facing the sack. Uh, ministers have been discussing the need for an exit strategy for the 62-year-old who leads more than 5,000 civil servants and whose contract is due to expire in spring next year. Uh, one informed source said that the SNP MSPs in the committee are preparing to throw her under the bus. Another nationalist source also ex uh, sources also expect departures from Nicola Sturgeon's team, including her husband, SNP Chief Executive Peter Morrow, and the Chief of Staff Liz Lloyd, who is uh, who is leaking information to the press. Um, and. Uh, the the next item here is Alex Salmond, um, a, a Herald article from Ian McWhorter, which I think summarises where we're at quite well. Ian McWhorter writes, Hollywood hardly dares breathe as Salmond faces final showdown. He comments, like an ageing gunfighter waiting for the final showdown, Alex Salmond has been kicking his heels outside the old courthouse for weeks. Winds blow, doors squeak, clocks tick, and still no one came. All we heard was the muffled cries of black-coated lawyers arguing about how many angels could occupy the head of a pin until now. So that's, uh, you see, you can, you can tell that eventually the very sleepy Scottish mainstream press have finally woken up to this and they're, po they're polishing off their best writing for this and it's getting very entertaining indeed. Now, one other aspect of the, uh, there are many aspects to the Civil Wars, we've covered Brian and I on a, on a special on this, one aspect of it is um, the, um, the split runs now through the whole um, nationalist movement, um, including one of the main blog sites, which is called Wings Over Scotland, uh, which is um, written from a, a location in England, um, and it, it looks at Scottish politics, and it's very popular amongst nationalist supporters and independent supporters. Uh, but it's also supporting Alex Salmond and is now beyond the pale. So here the, the Herald here uh, reports SNP row over second hell site blog post. Um, divisions within the SNP are growing after an MP penned an article for a website described hours early by a colleague as an appalling hate fest. And we have here the, 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 the tweet from Mr. Wishart in question. Um, he says, let's leave aside the fact that this rub rubbish is barely coherent. Imagine thinking it's still okay for an SNP politician to write for this appalling hate fest. It is shocking. So Wings Over Scotland is now an appalling hate fest. It was um, lauded and supported and praised to, to, the, to the skies not that many years ago by these same people, but now it's an appalling hate fest apparently. Um, and Wings Over Scotland are reporting this. Um, the report here on a, a, a definition of transphobia, we'll cover that one in extra time. 
uh, and they also report that um, that uh, Fiona Robinson and Graham Campbell, supported by Nicola Sturgeon, argued that anyone found tweeting or even retweeting links to Wings Over Scotland should be expelled from the party. <laughs> Although we don't know yet if, if this is uh, has happened from this. And we have here Graham Campbell uh, tweeting out, I can't divulge what's said on the National Executive Committee. However, my own position accords with yours. Mike Smart and Neil's money's Wings Over Scotland is an alt-right fascistic platform supporting retweeting or writing for it is incompatible with left social democratic civic nationalist or socialist policies politics uh, i believe it should be made incompatible with smp membership so they are basically saying that with uh, kenny mccaskill the extremely socialist um a member of Parliament for uh, in, for the SNP must be drummed out of the party because he has written for the wrong side in the great split between Sturgeon and uh, and uh, Salmond, and it will go on. There is building up to a bit of a crescendo. Wednesday will be quite entertaining. Uh, more on this story later. Uh, David, you've described utter chaos and breakdown there politically in Scotland. I'm going to suggest to our viewers and listeners that, of course, that situation has been deliberately created. But you've certainly described the Magic Kingdom. Uh, let's have a look at why I'm using that phrase. Um, volunteer police cadets. Well, thank you very much to the uh, former police uh, professional who alerted us to this. Uh, the title is Protecting the Magic and Securing Tomorrow. On Wednesday, the 17th of February 2021, over 800 cadets from 32 police forces across England and Wales took part in a virtual engagement event with the Walt Disney Company Europe, Middle East and Africa EMEA security team. Um, so if we just uh, scroll through that a little bit, here it is, Securing Tomorrow. So we can rest assured that uh, these young people are being trained by Walt Disney in order to secure our world tomorrow. And that, of course, is the Magic Kingdom. Um, quite a lot of material here, which I'll just give you. Um, they talk about the experience of Disney security people because they've had to cover huge sporting events and they've got to look after Mickey Mouse in shopping malls and certainly high profile guests. Um, at red carpet East European film premiere. So this is really difficult policing. This is equivalent to massive drug busts and, uh, and going after the people abusing children. So we're going to get the Magic Kingdom to train uh, uh, young cadets. Lots of comments here from Disney and from the, um, uh, the Volunteer Police Cadets organisation, which I'll come on to. Uh, but there we are at the bottom. All our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. So this is this is on a website supported by the police. Well, more than that, it's supported by citizens in policing and indeed the cabinet office. And David, don't feel left out because Police Scotland youth volunteers are also involved in this. Uh, youth United Police Now. So we've got the Cabinet Office, the heart of the British government, fully linked in to um, Disney. I'll just give you 30 seconds to respond on that before we break down the organisational structure a bit. I'm delighted that Police Scotland's part of this because uh, they've, they've, they've been for a long time very far from reality. 
and uh, it's good to hear that they are now you know, they're now going full Disney. They might be slightly less threatening, I would hope. Yep, the full Mickey Mouse, that's an appropriate way of describing it. So let's have a look at the structure. It all falls under the National Police Chiefs Council, this um, very dark organisation that uh, needs a lot of spotlight put upon it. Uh, we've got the citizens in policing valuing volunteers. This is creating something, Mike, is the feeling I get. Uh, here's the volunteer police cadets and the Scottish equivalent is Police Scotland Youth Volunteers. And then we've got all of the partner agencies that we've shown. And of course, we can now bring in the uh, experience of uh, the Walt Disney Company to help us learn how to police our company. So uh, what do they say? Well, the purpose of the volunteer police cadets is not to recruit police officers of the future, but to encourage the spirit of adventure and good citizenship amongst its members. So you've been through the cadet system. If, you, if this was an army cadet, that young person would be expected to know quite a bit about the army and when they went through the army training you could expect a person who was already primed and would know how to do a lot of um, essential things but this is all about the spirit of adventure so presumably when Britain's police are beating people on the streets this is um, them just learning the spirit of adventure and citizenship uh, we've got this one we believe that every young person deserves the opportunity to thrive regardless of his or her background I don't think they're should be using his or her in their mic. I think that was rather appalling. We encourage young people from all backgrounds to join the VPC, including those who may be vulnerable to the influences of crime and social exclusion. Remember that they want uh, those who may be vulnerable to the influences of crime and social exclusion. Um, so let's, this is the aims, just to make sure we understand everything, to promote a practical understanding of policing amongst all young people, to encourage the spirit of adventure and good citizenship, to support local policing priorities through volunteering and give young people a chance to be heard, to inspire young people to participate positively in their communities. Seems to me, Mike, this is entering the utopia. In the future, everything will be fine. Uh, this man caught my eye because he's the man who is quoted from VPC in the body of the article. It's Tim Mann, and apparently he's the adult training projects partnership lead. Good. Good. Uh, and he says this is just the start of a really exciting partnership between the National VPC and the EMEA, that's Walt Disney, security team. And we've been planning this event since November 2020, and it was great to see how the cadets engaged with the security team at Disney. We had a small number of cadets make up a Q&A panel, and they were a credit to their forces. Uh, well, this is another man from the VBC organisation, and I was fascinated to see that his job is apparently youth voice Marshall Volunteer Portal Lead. Now, I thought that this was possibly training marshals as well as training police cadets. But actually, um, on another section of the site, I found a reference to this. The leader resources is now in the resource library of MVP. If you require access to the Marshall VPC cadet management system, please contact your force coordinator. So I think the Marshall refers to a database where they seem to be recording everything to do with the youngsters and their education. 
Um, I found that very interesting. So this is where they're going from the age of eight, mini police in schools. They're getting the children young, taking them right up through. But they're not teaching them about policing. They're teaching them how to um, excel at life and spirit, spirit of adventure. Uh, then I came across this, keeping young people safe with lots of um, adverts for NSPCC confidential advice. And, and at the end of it, it says that if you have concern uh, about safeguarding, you can actually talk to the VPC safeguarding team. I wondered whether the VPC safeguarding team had done any basic police work to investigate the many, many detailed reports of sex images appearing in Disney cartoons. And if any of anybody thinks that uh, this is a bad joke by the UK column, I assure you it isn't. Go and have a look online for this evidence yourself uh, where embedded images are clearly present in Disney material. Uh, I'm getting an unpleasant feeling about what is going on here with, with this. Uh, this is uh, latest news uh, from them, of course, protecting the magic and securing tomorrow and relax about policing because it's run by Walt Disney. Uh, David, when I see vulnerable young children encouraged to get alongside an organisation and I see that that is uh, under the supposed protection of the National Police Chiefs Council, um, but I can look at Disney as an organisation and ask some very um, penetrating questions as to what's, what they're actually putting in their cartoon material, um, there is something deeply concerning about this. I get a very odd feeling about that. I don't, I don't get a good feeling about it at all. What exactly are the police doing with the children? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of this? There's, there's a few platitudes, but it doesn't really equate to a, 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 a properly expressed programme. Um, if you look at something like the Scouts or, or the Girl Guides or something, you, you'll, you'll find a much more coherent view, certainly when they were formed, of what they were for. What's this for? Uh, the thing that the thing that strikes me, David, just briefly, is you know the scouts, the girl guides, and so on are getting a lot of uh, woke uh, influence coming into their programs and so on. It's not going in the right direction, in my opinion. But here we've got the police recruiting cadets. But the police is being politicized in a way that we aren't seeing in many of these other organizations. And when the police is politicized to the degree that it is, then exactly what is the nature of the training? Uh, citizenship, but to a slightly different degree, perhaps it, it, it has potential, I think, to be uh, extremely damaging to uh, people's, to, to children's outlook in life. And it brings me back to, to uh, uh, you know the idea of, of getting getting the children young and making sure that they have they grow up with the right attitudes. Yes, and what attitudes are they speaking? What are they, are they teaching them? What do they actually believe? It's it's never really expressed with any kind of clarity. No, but if you're training if you're training children that everybody is part of the state surveillance system, if that's your objective, of course all this starts to make sense. And uh, since you put a China theme into the news, that makes sense to me as well. What's going on here is grooming of the children, certainly political 
grooming in order to the in order to make those children feel that state surveillance is a normal activity in a democracy so i think a lot of questions need to be asked of this uh, particular organization and i think uh, uh, we're prepared to ask the question about the disney cartoons and see what they say but of course we hope that other viewers and listeners from uk column audience uh, who may share our concerns will also take appropriate action. Um, David, uh, the final slide graphic of today then, uh, I think you said that this sums up uh, uh, COVID in one, or at least the COVID policy in one image. One, yes, COVID, UK COVID policy in, in one photograph. So this is a park and someone is, the council have sent some workmen down and they've put a little triangulated arrangement of Harris fences around so that no one sits on the benches, right? So you can walk in the park, but you can't sit on the benches because the benches, there's more than two seats there and this would be terrible. In fact, there's more than one, you know, you can't, you can't interact. Uh, so it's the, it's the banality of it. It's the triviality of it. It's the, it's the, it's the sadness of it and the waste, the waste of resources and the, the sheer small mindedness of the policy. It's just breathtaking. It's uh, breathtaking, but of course, if you live in the Magic Kingdom, all of this makes complete sense because we will be living a cartoon dictatorship is, mm. the, uh, is the reality of it. I think we're at the end. We are. We'll be back in uh, 10 minutes if you're on the uh, UK Column uh, member site uh, for some extra. Yeah. Thanks for joining us and thank you to everybody supporting the UK Column. Thank you for all the uh, really interesting emails that we're getting and the information that our viewers and listeners are supplying. Thank you. Bye-bye.